and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. All right, let's go once again to Ephesians. We left off in our study of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll pick up there. In Ephesians 2, and in verse 20, this is where we ended. In whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. It says that we are builded together, and we are builded together where it's now both Jew and Gentile that are built together, and we're built to be a habitation of God by way of that Spirit. God has made his dwelling place in us. We are God's habitation. And that's something that you really have to just stop and think about and what that means and how wonderful that is. What that really means to you. Um, last night, I was at, the hosp- at a hospital visiting someone who was, who was ill. And I stopped in the chapel in the hospital And it's not the first time I've been in um, that chapel or other hospital chapels. And I thought about it as I was there. Uh, I I like those little chapels simply because it is a quiet place that I can get and pray. And I thought about the number of people that would come in there and the circumstances, the situations that would bring them to this chapel. Typically, they're not coming in. They're never coming in there for a service. Services aren't done in those chapels. People are coming in there because they're seeking the presence of God for the most part. They're seeking God's presence, and usually, I would think it was at a time in a situation where there was some real, very serious situation going on. Some loved one who was ill enough that they were in there to pray. And that they were there to to come to God and to pray and to ask God for his intercession, for his help in that situation. You know, that's what people would look for in a place like that, in a chapel. They would come to seek the presence of God. Every week, To some extent, I'm sure every day, people go into churches. They go into cathedrals, temples. They go into places that, again, are there representing the presence of God. And all around the world, people do that, and they go to these places seeking God's presence. I grew up belonging to a a denomination, a church, where they had the most magnificent building. And... You know, I went back, I've been back there as an adult a few times, and I'm always just awestruck at the architecture and how you feel when you're in a place like that. You know, it's one of these places, these, these 
churches with, oh gosh, I'm, I wouldn't be good at guessing, but I would, I would imagine you're talking about a over 30 foot ceiling in the place. And, you know, these great huge domed ceilings and the great columns and everything's made out of stone and marble. And they're just very awe-inspiring. And when you're in a place like that, you're struck with that. You're struck with just how grand it is. And it almost makes it easy to feel, quote, the presence of God. You know, when you go back and you read in the Old Testament about the temple, the temple was an incredibly grand building. The temple was an incredibly grand building. And temples were, that were built, you know, as well as synagogues and other things, were all very big and grand and huge and just awesome. And it was all done to represent the presence of God. Certainly when it came to the temple and other people's temples, you know, although they may not have believed in the right God, it was for the same purpose. That it somehow represented and communicated something to people. The temple was done in a way, when you go back and read the detail of it, where it did communicate quite a bit. And there's great detail that we won't take the time right now to go into, about the temple, and everything in it was significant. The tabernacle that preceded it, that was also true. Everything was significant. Everything represented something. But overall, the biggest thing that it did represent was the presence of God. This was a place where Israel was instructed to go to seek God's presence. To seek His presence to seek and make sacrifices for sin to seek His presence, just to come to Him at times of need. And that was all done in the Old Testament <coughs> Excuse me, because Israel needed something tangible, something in the five senses realm to communicate to them that they were in God's presence. <coughs> That was where God's presence was represented. It's not where he actually lived. Even when that temple was built, it was clear that David, who at first wanted to build the temple, and later Solomon, who built it, both stated by revelation that God did not dwell in temples made by hands, that that wasn't where he really dwelt, where he really lived, that nothing could, could contain him, no building could contain him, but his presence was sought there and represented there, and people felt it there. But all of that changed. All of that changed in terms of the will of God, and it should have changed for the believer on the day of Pentecost. Because on the day of Pentecost, at that time, man received the gift of Holy Spirit. And at that point, God's presence his habitation, his dwelling place was within us. We no longer go to a temple or a church building or some cathedral, no matter how grand. We don't go to those places to seek God's presence because we don't have to. And God's will is that we would be bigger, 
we'd be spiritually bigger, that we'd recognize the reality of what is going on on the inside. It's actually to, to think that you have to go to a church or go to some building to find God's presence is actually a spiritually immature position. It really is. And it doesn't recognize the reality of what God has now made us to be. We are God's habitation. It says that we are the temple. The temple isn't a building, it's not a place now. God's dwelling place is not in a tabernacle or in a temple, but God's dwelling is within us. And God wants us to recognize that. To recognize that He lives within us and that His presence is with us every single minute. Every single minute. Yeah, we'll go there. Hold your finger in Ephesians, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, there's a section that relates to what we're going to be reading in Ephesians this evening. It relates to what I've just been saying, but it will relate to more of what we'll be getting into as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it begins in verse 1, "...with an I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony," which is the word mysterion in the Greek, the mystery of God, the secret or mystery. "...for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified." The most, the farthest Paul said he could go with these people, these believers in Corinth, was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's, for the most part, the farthest that most Christians go today. It's why the cross is, at, is the, focus, the focus of most churches, why it's the centerpiece, why it's right up front, because that's as far as they go, Jesus Christ and him crucified. But that's not where the power is. Yes, that represents his sacrifice. Yes, it represents his payment for our sins. But if it stops there, <laughs> then we're still crucified with him, and there we are, still dead with him. The power is in the resurrection. The power is in the resurrection. And that's really <clears throat> then where the focus should be on what is accomplished with that resurrection. Well, you can only go that far with them. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery or concerning the mystery even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. None of the princes of this world. And that doesn't mean Prince you know, Charles or Prince Henry or Prince Albert or you know, the Prince of Monaco. It's not talking about those princes. The princes of the world is talking about the adversary, the devil, and his kingdom. And none of the princes of this world knew that, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
The adversary, the devil, would not have manipulated, maneuvered situations, people, to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ had he known this great mystery. That's how big it is. He would never have had that done. He would rather have had Jesus Christ personally present on earth till this day than have him crucified if he knew what was going to come about as a result of that. What came about as a result of that? The great mystery. The great mystery that we begin, we've begun to learn about, and we will see even greater detail as we continue in Ephesians. This great mystery that has to do with God's habitation within us. But Paul was not able beforehand to talk about this with them and doesn't fully reveal it here in Corinthians as he's speaking. And he couldn't. He could not. Why? Chapter 2. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. They were not spiritually big enough, mature enough to receive it. And when people stop at the crucifixion, that's it. When people don't go any farther than the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, then they are still in that category of being spiritual babes. You know, babies are sweet. We got one in the room. You know, James, my grandson, he's very sweet. Everybody loves babies, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, you love them and you, you appreciate them as they are babies. And there might be a part of you when you're a mother or father or grandparent would like to keep them babies forever, but really you know that, well, no, you'd, you'd get awfully concerned if after two, three, four years, you know, you still had to treat, you know, Mackenzie there who's getting to be really old, she's going to be, what, five, did she say? You know, if we still had to treat her like James, we'd be concerned, wouldn't we? Mm -hmm. And yet, when it comes to Christians, a lot of them somehow just want to stay in that infant stage. They want to, they, they like Jesus Christ, His words. They like the Sermon on the Mount. They like reading about how loving and kind He was and the healings that He did. And they're content to live there their whole lives, but that's not the will of God. The will of God is that we would understand the mystery, that we would understand this great mystery. Let's go back to Ephesians. The will of God is that we'd become spiritual, not carnal, not just carnal. And by carnal, the carnal man is limited to his five senses. And so we needed those kind of very physical things. Moses needed a burning bush. He needed a burning bush for, for him to know that God was talking to him. And they needed the temple. So that, you know, they would quit going back to the gods of Egypt and making themselves golden calves and all these other things. And God knew that they were that carnal and that they needed something concrete, tangible, physical. But we ought to be bigger than that. We ought to be big enough that spiritually we recognize that God's presence is right within us. You know, right believing, this is the best definition I've ever heard of it, right believing is knowing that God's presence is in you and with you in every situation. When you recognize that God dwells in you, that gives you great power. 
That gives you such great power. When you walk into a situation and you feel, I'm not, boy, this is, this is intimidating. This is scary. This is, you know, I could get hurt here. Or I could, you know, this news is terrible and, and just, you know, fear-inspiring. Fear but when you stop and think, I've got God in me, you know, that changes things. When you know it's God and Christ in you, and that's who you are, does that make you somebody powerful? Yes. Jesus Christ, when he walked around, he knew he had God dwelling within him. He knew that the words he spoke were not his own words. He knew that the works that he did were not his own works. He knew that God was with him and working in him to willing to do of his good pleasure in every situation. But that's us too. That's what he, Jesus Christ, accomplished for us. When he was crucified and then resurrected, and then on the day of Pentecost, man received spirit, he got all that. He got all that. Well, let's read more about it. Back to Ephesians. Mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this cause, this cause of being God's dwelling place, I, Paul, the prisoner of, you, of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word. That word dispensation comes from a Greek word oikonomia. Oikos meaning house, and nomia meaning the managing of it, the stewardship of it. It is an administration, not a dispensation, but it is the administration of the mystery. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. This mystery, which, verse 5, in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery was not made known. In the, in the past. No one knew it. Because had anyone known it, if even the Lord Jesus Christ had known it, then the adversary, anything once it's in the senses realm, the adversary could have known it. And had he known it, we just saw, he would never have crucified the Lord of glory. Because he would rather have had him still here than what was accomplished with this mystery. This mystery, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This mystery is that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs and joint partakers and of, these, of the promise and in the same body. And that's us. We are part of the same body the body of Christ. This is the church of the body. In the Gospels, it was the church of the bride. Israel was the church of the bride. This is the church of the body. And that body, that's not just used as, you know, sort of a, a, a synonym or euphemism for a group, you know, like you know, the body of people present, but it is the body of Christ. 
with Christ as the head. And Christ in each and every member. Again, hold your finger here, but I think to fully <clears throat> give you the impact of it, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations. That's what we just saw also in Ephesians, right? That in the past, nobody knew it. It was hid. God had this hid. It was a secret. It was a mystery. It was a mystery because God hid it. It was hid from ages and from generations, but now, again, now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. The, <clears throat> the mystery being the Gentiles being part of that same body, but then the full riches of this, how great this is, what this ends up meaning is, which is the riches of it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Christ in you. It's Christ in you. You can go back to Ephesians. Mm. It's Christ in you, and that means that wherever you are, Jesus Christ is. That's why the adversary would rather have just had him personally present than that be accomplished. Because now, wherever there's a born-again believer, wherever somebody has confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and believes that God raised him from the dead, they have that gift of Holy Spirit, and the fullness of that means that they have Christ in them. Christ in them. We can do the works of Jesus Christ. And he didn't understand the fullness of the mystery, but he did understand that, that, that it was going to be power when the Spirit was received. And he said, the works that I do, ye shall do also, and even greater works. But the fullness of that is that it's, it's Christ in us. In Philippians, <clears throat> in Philippians 4, it says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Because it's Christ in us, we can do all things. This is the greatness, the fullness of that dwelling place, of God being in us. Man, when that if that ever gets to the place where it becomes real to you, where you just believe it and walk out on it, then the power you walk in is beyond your wildest imagination. In the first century church, they believed it. They believed it. They believed it, and man, they did incredible, incredible miracles incredible power that they walked in. And it wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just Peter. It wasn't just John. It wasn't just Paul. You read about the lives of men like Philip, the lives of men like, um, who is it, uh, Stephen. You know, all of these wonderful believers. They did incredible things. And it didn't stop there. God hasn't changed. Men and women today that believe that and walk out on it still do incredible things, incredible miracles. 
This is all still available because we have God's dwelling place within us. Well, we'll read more. Verse 7, Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me, Paul, who am the less, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable or untrackable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. This great mystery, Paul was the minister of it. He's the one that received the revelation. He's the one that received the revelation. And he calls himself the less of the least of all saints. And that's because Paul at one time, he was out there persecuting the church. At one time he was out there arresting men and women and consenting to the death of the saints. And that's why he called himself the less of the least of all saints. But God's mercy and God's grace was so big that not only was Paul called, but he was called to receive this revelation. And he shared this news, and he spread this news, and he gave it, and he had this goal, this mission, this purpose of helping people to see what was the fellowship of this mystery. The fellowship of it. The fellowship of it, the full sharing is what that word means. God wants us to fully share in all that he has fully shared with us. He has fully shared that inheritance with us. He has fully shared his promises with us. And he wants us to fully share in living it. That's the heart of God. That's the desire. That's the goal the goal in life is not just to, you know, have a nice place to live and nice clothes to wear and a nice car to drive and some nice friends to be with. The goal in life is to live spiritually. It's to live as a spiritual man, a spiritual woman. To not just live on the material realm, to not just live in the senses realm, but to live spiritually and to manifest that power. Verse 10 says, to the intent that someday in the future, no, that now, right now, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. God wants us to live it now. He wants us to be on display that, that the... You know, principalities and powers in the heavenly places can look and say, wow, did you, did you see what Lori just did? Did you see what Rita just did? Did you see that miracle that Pete just pulled off? Did you see the incredible power that Loretta walked in? That's, that's what God wants. Mm -hmm. That right now, we're living it that big. Verse 11 according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul said that in light of all this, 
he didn't want them to, to faint at his tribulations, which were for them. You know, Paul said that he was the prisoner of the Lord, and that was true both metaphorically and actually, physically, literally. Paul was a physical prisoner at this time. He was a physical prisoner in Rome. And he was a prisoner in Rome, not because he had knocked over some banks or, you know, had shot up some people or, you know, had done anything terrible. He was a prisoner in Rome because he was speaking the word, because he was moving the word, because he was willing to do whatever it took to do that. And he was also a prisoner because he was just bound in his mind to the life that he was living. He was just that committed, that, that he was just kind of a bound to do it. And some could have looked at that and looked at what he was going through, and they could have fainted, you know. You could look at that and say, oh my goodness, you know, is that what they're doing to, to Christians? There's places in the world where that happens. There's places in the world where Christians are being put in jail. There's places in the world where Christians are being horribly persecuted, where they are being put to death. And for some, they could look at that and they could faint. They could, you could, you could quit. You could walk away. You could run away, right? Mm -hmm. That might be too much, you know. I didn't know I was signing up for that. You know, I thought I was just getting lots of good stuff. But Paul said, in light of this great mystery, he would not want them to faint. He would not want them to faint at what happened because there's something so much bigger, something so much greater that he wanted them to know and understand. And that's where this then leads to is the second great prayer in Ephesians. Again, a prayer for knowledge. And this one, not just a prayer for a mental comprehension, but to experientially know what this great mystery brought about. And that's what we'll get into next time. Bless you. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.